Yeah, so thanks for coming, everybody. I'm really excited. Um, this is today we're going to be talking about courage, uh, and specifically courage in the face of existential anxiety. And this is a project that I've been very personally excited about, mainly because I've been very anxious for a very long time, and especially this past year. Um, it's been a terrible year. <laughs> so um, it's okay, I think. Um, but yeah, just a couple um, things to like preface our, our talk with is. Um, I'm going to open up times for questions. Uh, in those times, I might not always have answers. That's because I'm kind of new to this. Um, so please be generous with me. But, you know, don't hold back. Ask your questions. And if I don't know, I'll just tell you I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, so this is something I'm excited about and I'm really excited that you're here. So today we're going to be talking about the problem of courage. Um, and today we're also going to be talking about the problem of anxiety. Uh, specific kinds of anxiety, right? Um, and we're going to try to understand the two, and we're going to try to understand the relation between the two. Um, then we'll, we're going to examine some, oh wait, I guess we'll get to this. Um, then we're going to examine some more like talk to popular practical approaches to dealing with anxiety. Um, and then finally, we'll, we'll try to come up with and proceed with something useful for us. Um, and so this is kind of a map of what we're going to go through today, right? Like I said, it's a roadmap. So one, we're going to start with definitions. Um, it might not seem like really related at first, but uh, they're helpful, and we're going to return to them at the end. And I'll, I'll try to like wrap it up and tie it everything in. Um, then we're going to proceed with uh, like fear and anxiety. Like, is it, is it actually helpful? Like, what kind of uses can it serve us? Um, then we're going to try to define courage, and we're going to do this by doing a quick etymology of like of courage, the word courage. Oh, I should do this. Um, happy day after Valentine's Day. Um, then we're going to go through a few practical models, right, of, of courage. Um, and then evaluate them, assess them. And then perhaps even propose our own. Um, and then lastly, we're going to we're gonna talk about the Christian model, the true Christian model. Uh, well, the model that I like. Um, and then we're going to tie it back to the gospel because uh, the gospel is important. Uh, so that's so that's a roadmap for today. Um so first, we're going to start with definitions. And I've been like personally kind of a really big fanboy of this guy named Paul Tillich. He's a mid-century philosopher, theologian, existentialist. Um, Cliff actually introduced me to him a long time ago in a weird way because I was spying on his work. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he, he talks about these interesting concepts, right? And he defines them in a way that's really uh, helpful for us, for our purposes for today. So the way he defines love and sin... Um, it's actually really helpful for us. And the way he defines love is as uh, the reunion with the separated, reunion with something that you've been separated from, right? Uh, and this is helpful because it tells us that love isn't just a sentiment. Love isn't just a feeling, like an intense liking of something, right? And and that's helpful because we know that love is deeper than that. Um, but it also helps us understand love by looking at the opposite of love. Because it's not just a sentiment, just because it's just not a feeling, we also know that the opposite of love isn't hate, right? An intense disliking. So the opposite of love, actually, is sin. Uh, sin is separation, it's alienation, it's estrangement. So it has to do with relational separation. And so if you un understand these two concepts in that way, in this terms, in the terms of relationship, then we have a more comprehensive kind of definition of these two concepts. And I'm going to give you a couple examples, right? So like love, um, when you have a friendship with someone, it's a, it's a type of love, like a, a friendship kind of love. And in that relationship, hopefully, you, you know, you have empathy, like intellectually, like, oh, I understand you, and emotionally, like, hey, I'm with you, but also, you know, you're physically uh, empathizing, you're there with them through hard times. And so that's what a friendship is, that's what love looks like in that context. Um, in, in the context of marriage, it's similar, um, but there's also sex, right? I love talking about sex because it's going to make you guys feel all uncomfortable. But sex is important because it's a, it's a physical embodiment of that love. You see, it's, it's a physical reunion, it's a uniting, it's a coming together. Uh, and so that's why it's important. And so it's, it's, a, it's a quality of love. It's, it's an aspect of love that um, kind of goes in, in line with this definition, right? And so that brings us to um, our next item on the list of definitions that we're going to discuss, and it's, in, it's anxiety. And I really like how Tillich uh, kind, of, uh, kind of formulates these different categories of anxiety um, bec because I think they're very comprehensive, but they're also very useful, especially for our discussion today. And so he, he distinguishes like three different kinds of like existential fear uh, or anxiety. And one is the anxiety of death. Like, I'm going to die. I'm not, no longer going to exist anymore. Um, second one is anxiety of meaninglessness, right? And that's a big one, especially for neurotic millennials like me. Like, we're very 
we're very scared and very anxious about having meaning and doing something good. Um, the last thing is condemnation, moral condemnation, feeling like you fear God and you're not good enough. And so these are all the kinds of uh, anxieties that he kind of goes through. And maybe they're not exactly comprehensive, but they're good as a basic starting point. And if you think about it, maybe you have like specific anxieties in mind that you're personally dealing with. But ultimately, I think you can make a connection to these three basic anxieties. Um, and before we continue, I think it's kind of helpful, too, to kind of uh, make the distinction between anxiety and fear. So they're related, actually, right? They're related responses to, to things that we don't really like, that we're scared of. But specifically, the thing about fear is that um, fear, there's an object, right? Like, there's a lion. It's going to eat me. That's terrifying. Or um, there, there's a test coming up, and I fear the test, and I'm not prepared. Um, whereas anxiety is the object of anxiety is more intangible, right? So it's like death. Like for a test, you could study, you can prepare, and you can face the object. It's tangible. But death is a little bit different. Like you're going to face death, and death is going to, you're going to die, right? Uh, meaninglessness. So the same thing. Um, the point is there's like a operative difference, and the difference is anxiety is more looming. It's more like consuming. Um, for the purposes of our study, I'm going to kind of use the words interchangeably, and I hope that's not confusing. But at the end, I'll, I'll kind of bring it back home and um, address these specific anxieties. Right? So, that, so that for now, that's just something to think about. Okay. Oh, um, actually, could I? Who has their Bibles? Who has an iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna assign people to like read certain <coughs> verses at certain points. So, um, can I have some volunteers? So, I don't know. Anyone here? Volunteer? Wait, thank you. Um, can you pull up Isaiah 59.1-2? And then, David, can you yeah. pull one up? It's um, Luke 22.41-244. And anyone else? <coughs> Tom? Sure. Can you pull up um, Psalm 22.1-2? Luke 21. You're Luke 22.41-244. And so uh, I'm going to have Wade, can you read Can you read your thing? Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for reading that. And so that's kind of to exemplify kind of the point, like sin is about separation. And so I'm kind of rewinding. But don't worry, we're going to move forward. I have a couple other verses to assign. Can I get a couple other volunteers? Um, yeah, thanks. It's uh, 1 Samuel seventeen forty-one to 44. And then I'll call on you later. <coughs> uh, I have one more. Can, can I have one more volunteer? All right, Ashley, thank you. Um, Daniel 3, 17 to 18. And so those are all the, those are all the verses that we're going to kind of go over. <coughs> all right, so, so the next thing in our journey, we kind of made a few definitions um, and this stuff. So is, is fear actually helpful? Like, is it, when is it actually useful for us, right? Um, I think it is, actually, right? Um, so let's let's go to a couple of Bible verses. This is a Sunday school. Um, we'll have, let's see, we'll have uh, Luke twenty two forty one. Who who did that one? Yeah, that you? Luke twenty two forty one through forty four, yeah. right? So to kind of con- contextualize, <coughs> this is Christ, our hero, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, <coughs> he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay, yeah, so that's helpful, right? Uh, we see our hero Christ, and he's very apparently scared. He's 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 sweating blood. Um so yeah, that's interesting. The next case we're going to look at is David, uh, King David, the prototypical king of Israel, also a hero of sorts. Um, that's from first or Psalm twenty-two, one two. Is that you? Yep. Okay. Psalm twenty-two. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the word from the words of my groaning? Uh, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, I do not find rest. Cool. Thanks. Um, I know it's kind of like, oh, this guy's just picking and choosing verses that like substantiate what he's saying. But yeah, anyway, so David <laughs> is scared. He's scared, right? Um, but my point is, we see here like the best of us, even like the, in the Bible, like fear is a human thing. 
It's a very real part of our human experience. Um, and even our greatest heroes, they express tremendous fear in the face of distress and, and, and troubling things, right? So, so we see something here, right? Fear, fear is a part of being human, one. And if you think about it, it's actually helpful. Um, like, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to help you from thinking unrealistically, right? For example, like, let's see, let's say, like, let's say there's a cliff in front of you, right? And, and you're just like, are you afraid of falling over into it? If you're not, and you just walk over into it, then you're going to end up um, very dead. <laughs> so, so you see, right? That's like a dumb example. But you can see, like, actually, like, fear is useful because it tells us something about the truth. It helps us assess reality. So I'm afraid of falling through this cliff. I should probably be more mindful of it when I'm walking around. Um, so that's like a very practical thing of fear. But what we're concerned about is anxiety and fear when it's too much, when it's um, when it's when it's overbearing. And so 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 we understand that fear can be useful, but we want to understand when it's not useful as well, so we can deal with it. Um, let's see here. Oh yeah. So then that's why it becomes a good idea to understand and pursue courage. That brings us to our next item. So we understand fear is helpful. So we're going to try to understand courage. And we're going to do so by doing like a brief etymology of the word. Um, so traditionally, a lot of words have been assigned for the word courage, for the idea of courage. And actually, a lot of these words have been have been very gendered or very classed um, kind of meanings of the word. So for example, like uh, especially in Western society, we, we tell boys, like, hey, be manly, be a man, be strong, right? Don't cry. And so that's that's like one version of the word that's actually had a lot of history and a lot of relationship with the word or the idea of courage. Like be a man, be masculine, and a lot of the words have like roots that come from um, kind of this masculine image. Uh, another another image that we have in terms of the concept of courage is is a class kind of idea of courage. Like uh, like back in the day, maybe in the medieval times, a lot of people who kind of um, initiate a lot of the wars, the military activity, like they were they were people of nobility. Because they are the people with like soldiers, they can afford wars, um, and so uh, be noble, right? Uh, yeah, command, have have militaristic might, and so this is kind of a class understanding of courage. But the third, and I mean, there's not there's a lot of different versions of the word, but for the for, for our purposes, for the third understanding of the word courage, I really like the way the Bible uses it, right? Uh, and it actually refers to this. Um, so um, I'm, I'm just going to go through this in, in John sixteen thirty three. Christ is prophesying about his own imminent death, and he's also talking about, you know, um, prophesying about the subsequent trials that his disciples will, you know, most certainly have to face. Uh, and he says to them something. He says, "Hey guys, like, hey look, like, uh, take heart, be comforted, you know, because I overcome the world." And so I really like that image, and it's and it's a kind of idiom that uh, in the Bible a lot. Take heart, right? And, it's, and this is the one that I like using most. But it's also um, where our word our English word for courage comes from, right? This is the French word for heart. And so you can see cur. We just added like A-D-E. Like, oh, this is our word now. <laughs> courage. Okay, so good. Um, so you see here the image of heart, to have heart, to take heart. Uh, it means to be courageous, right? Um, but the thing that kind of I see a common thread in a lot of the versions of the word and understanding of courage is this courage in the face of war, in, in, in the context of embattlement, Right? Uh, and maybe this goes back to our ancient roots, um, or maybe our never-ending like obsession with like death. Uh, yeah, it's in war, death is so plain, it's so visible, and it's also like very direct. Um, so we're gonna look at this next excerpt from. It's actually not from the Bible, so I'm gonna read it. Uh, it's from a New York Times piece uh, on a similar subject. It's by this professor, an English professor from BU, and he he's like very interested in like this kind of stuff. So this this is the excerpt. Um, the United States reserves the Medal of Honor only for someone who distinguished himself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Simply doing one's duty doesn't quite cut it. This may seem a miserly distinction, but it helps justify labeling the mere fulfillment of certain duties as courageous. We call people courageous for doing their duty when we refrain from calling those who do not perform the same duty cowardly. Um, so consider, for example, the case of Kevin Vickers, who fatally shot the attacker in Ottawa. And this, so this article was written at the time when there's a shooter at Ottawa, you know, the capital of Canada. It's, it's Canada. But there's a shooter, and this guy like, took him out. Um, 
So this guy, Kevin Vickers, who fatally shot the attacker in Ottawa. Uh, one could argue that because Vickers is the sergeant-at-arms of the Canadian House of Commons, he was just doing, doing his duty, and so should not be called courageous. But Vickers' posts, as news accounts frequently noted, um, was largely ceremonial. And if he had let someone else stop the killer, say, I don't know, SWAT team, no one would have called him a coward. And that means he was courageous, because he did it when he didn't have to, so he exceeded the call of duty. So that's a really interesting um, definition of courage, which I find like really beautiful and compelling you know, at a personal level. Um, so so that's, that's our brief etymology of the word courage. And so now... We kind of have, like, you know, I guess a theory is a theory, but we're going to get more practical and we're going to look at different models, um, different frameworks that we actually tend to use uh, in dealing with our problems. Um, so there's a few different models. Um, there's the, there's the like, Goliath one. That's what Keller calls it. I like to call it Hercules because, like, it reminds me of the rock. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's the Stoic model, which kind of goes back to like, the ancient Greeks and how they approached this. Uh, and there's also um, the fake Christian model, right? Not the real one. Uh, so yeah, we're going to go through these uh, one by one, and kind of briefly, because I think we're doing good on time. So, so the first model, which is the Goliath model, right? Uh, this is where we're going to have the first Samuel person read their excerpt. Who is first Samuel? Oh, thank you. So first Samuel 17, 41 through 44. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Thank you. Um... This is a this is a very like iconic image that we have, you know, David and Goliath. But basically, Goliath is saying like, "I don't fear you. I fear nothing." And so that's that's kind of the framework or the the basis of this first approach. And I like to uh, uh, what is it associated with the Rock? Because like I don't know if you've seen the trailers. I haven't seen the movie. It's probably really bad. But uh, but it's with uh, he's like Hercules, and he's like, "I don't fear anything. I'll kill anything." And he goes and kills a lion. He's like, "I don't care. I'll kill anything." He kills like people. Like, I don't care. I'll kill anything. And he kills like whatever you can think of, right? So it's like it's like it's like an interesting. Um, anyway, it's, it's appropriate to this model, and this this model of, of courage is is basically saying, uh, yeah, banish your fear, get rid of your fear. Uh, courage is the absence of fear, and so, um, and when we talk about it like this, like oh yeah, get rid of your fear, like immediately maybe the response is oh yeah, that's kind of impractical, like sounds kind of crazy, like we're real people, we know better. But think about it this way too, like there's a popular approach that a lot of counselors take. Um, and it's called visualization, right? It's a technique that I think is actually very useful. It has its place. Um, it's functional. But it's something that um, especially helps, like, people who are performing or poor athletes, right? And so, for example, like, what they'll do is, like, oh, um, counselor, I, I'm, uh, I'm a violinist, and I'm having problems performing on stage. What they'll do is they'll tell, they'll tell me, like, okay, look, just close your eyes. Just visualize yourself performing in front of a, in front of a packed house. Um, visualize yourself playing all the notes to the T precisely, beautifully, just as you practice, and see yourself succeeding. Visualize your success. Right? This is a technique we're familiar with, right? Um, this is what we do to kind of, kind of get ourselves to get pumped up before a race or like before tests, maybe like, oh, I got this. I'm going to do this. You just tell yourself that. And so this is kind of related to this model. Um, you're focusing on the end. It's success. And the focus is very much um, on a self-esteem, right? And like I said, it's functional. And in a lot of cases, it's useful. But ultimately, um, I would say this this model is a bit delusional, actually, right? Because it's not based on um, like an actuality. It's just based on a very like firmly firmly stated hope. Um, so it ignores danger, it ignores fear, and in that way, it's delusional as well. And and what do you do, right? Like, let's say you visualize yourself winning the race, and you don't win the race. What if you visualize yourself getting the dream job that you've always wanted to get? What if you visualize whatever, 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 but you don't get whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's very, like, realistic. Like, what are you doing that? Um, and so for those situations, which are a very real part of life, like, this, this model doesn't have a very good uh, kind of response to it, right? And so we see the limitations to, to this approach. Um, the, next, the next one is the stoic model. 
this is this is something I, I think is really beautiful and I respect a lot. Um, the ancient Greeks, uh, the ancient Stoics, had a very interesting approach uh, to dealing with you know the inevitabilities of life, like death, uh, pestilence, uh, you know, war. Um, and admirably, they were very realistic with their situation. Um, what what this approach did was they didn't ignore the objects of their fear, right? They acknowledged the objects of their fear. Um, but what they did more specifically was they faced the fear and anxiety head on. Um, they understood it in light of the inevitable death, uh, the inevitable unknown. Um, and because they were going to die in any case, it didn't really matter to them. Like, oh, I'm going to die anyway. It doesn't matter to me. And so they used this as a reason to kind of totally disregard their fear, their emotion. Like, oh, uh, maybe you could call it like a fatalistic approach. But like, oh, I don't care. Like, we're going to die anyway. And so um, it's also kind of like, I think it's also sort of like a repression of emotion because like, oh, you might feel fear, but it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to dismiss that feeling. And so in that way, it's also kind of repressive, I think. Uh, but the result of that approach is it's a very cosmic <coughs> resignation, like a big, I don't care, right? We have other signs for that. But uh, <laughs> a big F you, like, I don't care. Um, it doesn't matter in the end uh, because we're going to die. But there, this is like where I think it's really beautiful, right? So, so we're going to die. We're going to die anyway, but because of that, we're going to pursue beauty. We're going to pursue virtue. And, and we're going to die well. We're going to die beautifully. And so that was an approach, right? Um, I don't know if you've seen like that movie, 300. Uh, and I think maybe that's like the most popular example. But like, you see these guys. They're going to get killed. These 300 Spartans. They're going to get killed by this Persian army because there's so many more of them. But they do it anyway. And they're like, we're going to die well. We're going to die beautifully. And we're not going to wear clothes because we're hella buff. <laughs> and we're going to like just close them while we, you know, fight. And so it's like, it's very, it's very fun. Um, but anyway, that's like kind of a case in point, right? Um, yeah, like in the face of this trouble, they're like, I don't care. We will do this well. And so you can see like where it's compelling and beautiful in that way, right? Um, but I guess the shortfall is that, well, it's, it's heroic, um, but ultimately very bleak. Uh, and fatalistic, and so it's not it's not necessarily bad, but it's it's and it's beautiful. But this also brings us to to the next example, right? <coughs> the the Christian model. Uh, I put it in quotes because uh, this is something that I personally been kind of like dis disillusioned, <coughs> disillusioned by, and dispelled with. Um, so this model kind of tells us about okay, like okay, do do what's good, all right, um, then your life will be good, like your circumstances will be good. Great. Got it. Right? And whether consciously or not, like, you know, at a conscious level, we're like, oh, yeah, that's this pretty irresponsible approach. Like, we know better than that, right? But I think at a, maybe at a subconscious level, I think we, a lot of us adhere to this model. And that's also why, you know, when, I can't say bad words, right? Uh, when, when crap hits the fan, when stuff happens, um, when terrible, terrible things happen, Right? You say to God, hey, hey, man, like, what the hell? Like, what's going on? I, I, I thought you were going to make things good, right? I thought you promised these things, and I thought you were going to make things right. I, I mean, I do good. Like, I do good things. I do, I do them well. I care about people. I'm righteous, right? But, but still, all this, like, all this. Um, and so maybe you understand that response. Maybe you understand that. Uh, and that response is very much rooted in this idea that I do good things and I deserve good things as a result. Um, and so even though maybe it's not healthy, like it's something that we resonate with at some level. Um, so it's normal. But what does that way of thinking like reveal about us, right? Um, it tells us that maybe, maybe our conception of the gospel is inaccurate. And by maybe I say certainly, right? That's what I mean. <laughs> um... That's because it isn't very well-equipped to deal with the real. You know, the terrible contingencies, like the unforeseen things that happen in life, like, that are the source of a, a lot of our anxieties, right? Like, I don't know. Um, like, friends getting cancer, right? Um, like, colleagues like dying, right? Um, or, like, I don't know. Um, people getting shot in the streets because of their skin color. Um... Or maybe even like more real at home, like trying and trying to get a job and um, 
you've done the right things, but you don't get it. And so back to the beans, right? Um, something that I really personally dislike also that's related to this model is like, I, I think the church is really guilty of this. So maybe we can stop doing this. Uh, but also like people in general are really guilty of doing this. Like I'll tell someone like, hey man, like I'm going through this thing, it's terrible. And they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah man, cool, I'll, I'll think of you and uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Like, it will work out in the end. Don't worry about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks, man. You suck. Like, that's totally dismissive, for one. You're not, like, recognizing the, like, the weight of my situation. Mm-hmm. And two, like, because you're doing that, like, you're kind of, like, de- disinvesting yourself in my situation. You're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. That's what God says. And if not, uh, there is even an if not. But it's going to be fine. And so I don't really have to help you. So, like, it's I think it's really irresponsible, right? Um, I guess before we kind of proceed... Uh, I'll open up the floor to any questions, any comments. Um, that kind of concludes this part of our, our model. Any questions? So you're saying that the fake Christian model is kind of like a, there's always a happy ending kind of way. Uh, it. Yeah, I think so. That's part of the expectation, yeah. And, and we know that that's not true. Um, but when the happy ending also doesn't come, which is also very real, then you uh, blame the person. We might blame God. Mm-hmm. And we might get bitter at God. And that's not good because I don't think that's what actual, our actual faith tells us. Mm-hmm. Is that responsive? Any other questions? I'm doing this like exercise. You open up the foot of questions and you breathe seven times. <laughs> but it's like seven times a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm going to breathe three more times and then if there's no question <laughs> <laughs> it's a little thumb so so it also seems like the three models all of them to some degree diminish danger would that be fair to say yeah I think that's a really good connection that you're making um, maybe not maybe diminish but also just have a a misassessment mm-hmm. of the danger like, yeah, they don't proportionally understand the danger, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. Um, but if they do, like a stoic model, okay, um, they don't care. Like, it's very fatal if you're doing it, right? Any others? So both Goliath and stoic models minimize or suppress the emotion, right? But the Goliath one has, like, a false hope that they're, like, visualizing, and the stoic model doesn't care. Is that the difference? Do you know what I mean? Cause I, so they both... Yeah. They both minimize or right. suppress the emotion. Right, I think okay. so. Actually, the fake Christian one does as well. Yeah, I guess yeah. I could say, yeah. say that, yeah. yeah. Um, the Goliath one, uh, it represses fear, <coughs> but it's also focusing on success. Um, so when it doesn't happen, which is like failure, right. uh, it's like kind of devastated. Uh, the stoic model is like, I don't care, I'm going to repress that emotion, which is fear, um, but I'll proceed anyway. That's right. I like that one. Yeah. And the third one, you know, it's just like, I'm entitled. Uh, to good things, not to good things, and when that doesn't work out, like, um, it leads to it leads to bitterness. I don't know if I'm actually answering your question. I'm just no, summarizing. No, I think yeah, but all three, like, there's no resolution. There's still fear and anxiety at the end. Right. Like, yeah. Right. It feels like number three is sort of related to what people call the prosperity gospel. Okay. Where it's yeah. like that prayer that people always say, like, to like God's going to bless you with things, and like yeah. your worth is tied to your material success. Yeah. Like you said, like, it's a, I do this so I can get this. Yeah. And that's how you determine if you're a good person or a good Christian. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm still waiting for my lotto ticket, so (laughs) (laughs) that one's not really working out for me. Um, But yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. One more comment. I think all three of them are delusional. Like, they're not grounded in, so they're, they're assuming that something will happen, but when that thing does not happen, then what? each of them right? right they all work when it succeeds right exactly <laughs> but when they fail and you know 50% of the time they will fail yeah then what yeah depending how strong you are <laughs> example Dwayne Johnson's like 50% <laughs> that's a really good point um although I think that's why the stove one is beautiful it's like I don't care uh which I like yeah, but then for the stoic, like, if they're going to do something dangerous, they don't care if they die. And then if they yeah. don't die, they're just going to be like, okay. 
Yeah. I'm with my dang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I, I was prepared to die today, but. Yeah. <laughs> and I think also, like, the implications of that that are, like, kind of negative ones is that, like, maybe you might not care, like, so much about the actions, um, the result of your actions on other people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's kind of harmful to society <coughs> as a whole. Or it kind of thinks, like, that stoic means you don't matter. So, like, if I'm going to go do something and, like, you said, you're going off to battle in that extreme example. And yeah. If I die, it doesn't really matter to anyone. Like you said, yeah. 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 Maybe. I, I, to be honest, um, my understanding of this, the stoicism mm-hmm. is very, like, much at a survey level. And so I can't, like, intelligently speak to that. But if I had to choose, I, I guess I would agree. That's what you're saying. Uh, okay. So we're going to move on. Uh, seven breaths more. <laughs> um, so who got Daniel? Daniel 3. 17, Yeah. So this is, a, I'm going to contextualize really quick. So this is uh, Meshach, um, Shadrach, and Abednego. These are, like, these smart guys from Israel. Um, uh, these are these smart guys. And uh, are they from Israel or Judah? Judea. Judea. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, but basically, their, their land got conquered by the Babylonians, and they uh, were brought to Babylon to kind of, like, be integrated in this pluralistic society. And as part of their, like, life here, uh, the king was saying, like, hey, you can worship whoever you want, but you also have to worship this idol who is actually me. Um, so it's it's actually very interesting, right? Because, like, we're in a pluralistic society, and it's okay to be Christian, but it's also, like, you also got to be okay with everything else. Um, that's that's kind of, like, the implicit... Um, kind of overhanging belief. But anyway, so this is this is the verse. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that you will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, thanks. So yeah, this one is like, I think it's like a really beautiful, for maybe the same reasons I'm very like, uh, attracted to the second view, the stoic view. Um, so according to this verse, right, Courage is doing the right thing, uh, maybe the morally right thing, even though it means possible self-destruction. So these guys were facing like very certain death, and they were saying like, "Yeah, God's gonna save us." Uh, but even if not, like, it doesn't matter. Though, right? uh, and so that's really beautiful. Um, they're expressing a defiance that's similar, like I said, to the Stoic model. Um, what they're saying is, uh, "Yeah, we're not gonna bend, even, even if, even if not, in spite of." <coughs> Uh, and, and I think that's stunning. Um, are you stunned? You should be stunned. <laughs> um, but you see, like, it's actually also very different from the Stoic model because it's it's fundamentally it's fundamentally different because the courage of the Stoics um, it's one that kind of embraces the hopelessness, right, the despair. But um, I don't think theirs is. Um, and so, so that kind of brings the question, like, okay, so all right, then what is the source of their help? What is the source of our help? Um, this is where the script kind of changes because I updated it yesterday. But what is the source of our hope? And I think the answer is for, for the Christian, um, it's not embracing the hopelessness in the same way. It's, let's see what the script says. And it has to do with God. It has to do with the gospel. And so that kind of brings us to the next part of our journey. Um, yeah, so this is the model that I we're going to focus on, right? This is the model that Christ presents us. Um and before we kind of like get like kind of heavy into it, um, yeah, I want to talk about cowardice, right? Cowardice is like a really weird thing. It's actually really weird, um, and it's very despic- despicable, and it's generally very hated. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but we never talk about cur- cowardice, right? Like uh, historically, even that's kind of been the case. So there's this guy I mentioned, him, Chris Wallace. He's a BU professor in English. He's done a lot of work in this area. He's the uh, we read his expert earlier. Um, he also finds this topic of cowardice um, very sh- generally shunted by philosophers, right? Um, he says maybe, with the exception of Kierkegaard, that, I mean, he probably paid more attention to it than any other philosopher, but generally it's been very, like, ignored and not really addressed. And I think this is also really evident in the world of literature, like, arguably. Um, there's arguably far more literary works focused on courage, its glorification, its exploration, than maybe there are on cowardice. So... I guess bringing this back home, but like even in the church, uh, like cowardice is something like we don't really like to spend much time with, and something that we even like try to like avoid. For some reason, it's very scary. Like we use euphemisms, right? Like humility, humbleness, meekness. And if you think about it, like yeah, these are qualities that we might associate with a cowardly person, but we're 
we're kind of dressing up these words and like these new connotations, right? So I guess what, what I'm trying to say is, even when we talk about cowardice in this way, like kind of indirectly, like we're coming up with euphemisms as opposed to like talking about it directly. Because, uh, you know, humility, what is it? It has to do with like humiliation, like realizing that you're a total embarrassment, right? And so it's, if you think about the words, they're actually like very like raw. Um, a funny case in point is uh, I was borrowing, or I was using Michael's Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, and basically it's like you can look up these like concepts, uh, these themes that run through the Bible, and then the, if, if it's an entry in the dictionary, then I'll like refer you to like, other verses, and I'll kind of give you an explanation. And so, so I looked up these different words like like courage. Okay, there's an entry. I looked up hero. I looked up battle and, and confidence. Right, and there were entries for these things, but um, when we looked up cowardice, like uh, yeah, no surprise, right? Nothing. Like, that, uh, no entry existed, right? Even then, it's like, why isn't this here? Like, everything else is there. Um, well, but also, so, so my point is this, right? Like, we don't, we don't like being powerless. Um, so we definitely don't like being associated with, with cowardice. That's the immediate kind of connection that I make. But, but when we, when we look at the story of Christ, right? Um, everything he does, the way he dies, especially, and even, he resembles a coward. It's very, like, kind of befuddling if you think about it, right? Like, if you go to Rome, right, there's, like, graffiti, like, ancient graffiti, and you might, like, see, like, an image of, of Christ, and his head is, like, an ass, and he's being crucified, right? Um, people in the ancient world knew that it was weird. Like, they knew, like, it's very counterintuitive to glorify a guy who was dying a coward, uh, a criminal's death, right? It's very backwards. It's very counterintuitive. It's very upending. And so even they realize it. And I think uh, it's important... On that, the reason why crucifixion is a coward's death is because a, a, a courageous person would never be caught. They would fight their death. That's they a good would never point. surrender. Yeah. Because the act of surrender is an act of cowardice. Okay. So it's very much an also... It's very much an act of surrender. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, so... I, okay. I know it's, we're getting late. It's getting tiresome. Hang with me. We're going to kind of go back to our etymology of the word courage. Um, and we, you see that Christ doesn't really fit either one, right? He's not exactly manly. Like, he's crying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. He's crying out on the cross, right? Um, he's immobilized and asphyxiated, right? He's surrendered. Um, so he doesn't fit, like, that image of courage. And he also doesn't fit, like, the class understanding of courage either, right? He's not, like, a commander. He's not, the, he's not like, oh, yeah, I'm God. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm God. <laughs> like, angels save me. Like, uh, oh yeah, uh, I'm a military leader, so like, destroy these like, uh, like terrible D-bag Roman guys, right? Just like, get rid of them. And like, he doesn't do that. He doesn't assert his military political might or like his, his status. And so you see, like, um, he's very weird. He's so he's not courageous in like either sense of the word. He's what we witness is is the death of our Lord, right? Um, and he's not very like. He's not very obviously triumphing over his enemies. He's he's dying a, a terrible death, a despicable death, a humiliating death, you know. Um, and I guess what I would define as like a coward's death. Right? So this is really bizarre to think about because um, then, if we believe in Christ, what we believe in is actually very counterintuitive and very strange. Um, but but uh, it's also what I think is also very beautiful, right? Um, Christ's death is meaningful for us. And not just because it's a model of courage, uh, but because he dies, um, because he dies for us, like for us, right? Um, maybe I'm not making it clear, but Michael says this often, like when, so- when someone dies for you, like uh, it-, it changes you. Uh, when someone dies for you, it changes you. Um, and that's exactly right, right? We see how beautiful Christ's act is because he assumes the coward's role, he assumes the coward's position, and, and then and then for what? Um, to love us. Uh, he does this because he loves us, and so in the cowardice of Christ, or the seeming cowardice of Christ, we see in it, uh, we see in the true courage, uh, we see his beauty, and uh, maybe most importantly, we we see his love for us, right? Uh, and so. It, see the connection we're going to come back here soon we're going to get back to love um so for us like in facing our own shortcomings and cowardice uh maybe by what he's done we can be moved to love courageously ourselves we can love our god we can love our friends we can love people 
and even in the face of our greatest anxieties, right, like death, condemnation, meaninglessness, we're we're inspired, and we're free to love God. We're free to love people, and, and in Christ's story, in his in the gospel, like in his act, uh, we find a resource um, with which to fight our greatest anxieties, right? This great courage. Um, okay, so this brings us to our last piece, which I'm very excited about. I'm glad we're making good time. So, so now before I wrap up, right, I want to address like a question maybe maybe some of you are thinking about. Uh, if you're new to Christianity, you might be asking something that I hear a lot, right, from a lot of my non-Christian friends, and it's a valid question. So like, okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, uh, how did Christ die for me? specifically for me. Like, I, I get it. I get it. Like, right? Like, Christ, he actually died at the hands of political and religious leaders. Um, he was subversive. You know, his teaching was morally good and philanthropic, but at the end of the day, he was extremely subversive uh, of the political, social, cultural power of the time. So, like, yeah, that's why he, they killed him. Like, how are you connecting his death uh, with him being a savior to me? Right? And that's a big question. Um and I needed to talk to like some of the pastors about this question because I didn't really actually know the answer. But the easy one is, uh, the first one is, well, one, uh, Christ says so. Right? He says, like, I died for you. I saved you. Like, okay, cool. Uh, maybe some people don't exactly buy that because they don't, you know, um, they don't buy it. So, so this, the second uh, kind of response that maybe I would give um, is this. And in order to make this kind of response, we need to make a few connections very clear, right? And so we're going to return to these definitions that we introduced earlier on in the lesson. I'm going to tie them up, kind of uh, tie in with them. Um, so first, like we define love as reunion, right? Reunion with separated. What it is is essentially, um, Tilly says, a drive towards the unity of the separated, right? And then we can understand sin as separation, right? Sin is the opposite of love, this relational separation, estrangement, and alienation. Sin is essentially the thing that causes for us a lot of our relational separation, right? So that's the relationship of the two things. Um, how do they relate to anxiety? Um, well, this is some a connection that I made, and I think it kind of works. Um, well, in light of these definitions, I think let's see, let's let's try to understand these three: right? anxiety of death, anxiety of meaninglessness, anxiety of condemnation. Anxiety of death has very much to do with sin, in that it relates to like separation and alienation with with ourselves, like our very selves, right? Like, why are we afraid to die? We are anxious of no longer existing, ourselves no longer existing. We don't want to be alienated from our existence, from our very selves. And so, like, this is a sin that's related to that, to ourselves existing. And then the, the anxiety of meaninglessness, right? That's the next one. Um, it's a sin that's very much related to separation and alienation from our community, um, from people around us, our world. Um, when we're separated from others, like, maybe we feel like we don't have a purpose, right? Um... Like, but when you have friends, when you have a community, maybe you do. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, for a lot of us, I think this is also why uh, we put a great deal of our energies and weight into our professional success, right? That we have to do well. Um, we have to do well in our work. We have to make money. Uh, we also have to do good work that's helping society as a whole, right? So you see the connection. Your work has a connection to the community and the world. And so in a greater way, it helps us feel more meaningful. And so I guess what I'm saying is, this anxiety of meaningless has very much to do with um, a separation, the relation, uh, the relational separation we might have with our community and our world. And then the last anxiety, which is you know the, the anxiety of condemnation, right? Um, this this has to do very much with the sin, with sin in that it relates to our separation and alienation from God. Um, a lot of us grew up reformed, so I'm sure we're not unfamiliar with guilt. <laughs> um, But in fact, you know, some of us, like in a real way, we might feel that kind of moral condemnation on a daily basis. And so that's that's the kind of separation that's, that's that this anxiety relates to, the anxiety of condemnation. And so they're all related to sin. That's what we see, the connections, right? Anxiety of death, anxiety of meaningless, the anxiety of condemnation. They're all related to sin in some way, separation relationally. Um, okay, so now let's let's make the connection. This is... This, this is why I think what Christ did and who Christ is is so awesome and important. Like he faces death, he dies. Okay, uh, but that's not the end, right? I mean, he's God, so he defeats death, and then he he resurrects. This is actually important for us because we know that God isn't the truth. He isn't just the great. He isn't just the great I am. Yeah, I shall be who I shall be. 
He's actually the Emmanuel God, right? And what does that mean? That means he's a God with us. And if we understand our definition of love, then that means he's the God of love because he's very much with us. He's a part of us. He's reunited with us, right? So he's the God of love. And what that means is, yeah, Christ loves us, uh, his people. Like, we're a part of him, and we are very much with him. And in a very real way, we're grafted onto him, right? Um, and I, as a side note, like, that's also why I think communion is so important. Um, because it reminds us, like, yes, we are with him like, in a very real way. Um, we're part of his body. But anyway, um, but since we're very much with him, uh, we're in love with him. Like, that's the very resource, I think, that will help us defeat a lot of our existential anxieties. So, like, one, yes, we're going to die. I promise. <laughs> um, but because he's with us, we are part of also his resurrection. Do you understand? Like, we're, we're, we're with him there. Like, we're part of his resurrection, his, his work, his life. And then two, yes, um, yes, you might feel alienated, meaningless from others. But because he's with us, you know, we're part of his community. We're part of this community that we come to every week and we're reminded, like, oh, yeah. Like, if we're the body of Christ, that means Christ is, God is with me. Like, your physical reminders of that. Um, and because our lives just don't end with death, we can build communities that have hope. And we can, like, build towards something that won't just end. And then third, <coughs> yes, we feel condemned. Like, morally condemned. We might feel, like, divine moral condemnation from God. But because he's with us, right, and we're very much a part of him, what does God see? He sees Christ's righteousness. When God sees us, he might say, like, oh, yeah, you're kind of a terrible person. You do all this bad stuff. And you admit it. But you also love Christ. And so what I see in you is beauty. What I see in you is Christ. What I see is righteousness. And so at the end of the day, he sees you and he deems you beautiful. Um, he deems you righteous. And he deems you good. And so you see, uh, love is the answer. Right? And that's kind of why I chose today, uh, the day after Valentine's Day. Um, and I don't want to diminish it, but yeah, love is actually the answer. Um, and so that's, that is the greatest beauty of the gospel. Um, the gospel. That yes, um, yeah, we don't deserve the good things that the Emmanuel God, the God with us, gives us. But he gives it to us anyway, and he gives it very generously. And so if we recognize his love for us, then we're part of that. <coughs> So we see the God of love. We see the God with us. And so, and since we are with the God who has defeated death, right, Christ, um, you know, meaninglessness, condemnation, uh, for us, like, yeah, it's going to be okay. I'm almost done. Can you let me finish with two sentences? Yeah. So in, in that love, the love of God, there's power, there's beauty, there's glory. And in that love is also the key to understanding our greatest anxieties. Um, I hope I made a connection clear at the end. Um, so in that love, you know, it's hopefully we have the keys to understanding our anxieties, but also the keys to understanding um, the very courage that we can have and take and use in the face of those anxieties. Right? Uh, that God is with us. That's it. You have a question? No, I was just so excited. Oh, okay. What you're saying? Yeah. Um, because I I think like. The, the, the definition of the Christ model um, of courage has been driven by love as different than the three earlier models. Yeah. Right? Because the other three models don't have love. Yeah. Right? I think that's really beautiful and compelling. I, I was so, that's why I was so excited. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, like, unlike the Stoic model, there's no detachment. Christ is attached. Yeah. Right? He's driven by love. And unlike the Goliath model, he's in agony, he's weeping, he's experiencing all the terrors of the, of the danger um, and unlike the fake Christian model um, the hope is not in this life right there's right. a much longer hope but I think that's the difference is love right it's not brute strength or anything like that yeah. I think that's like so beautiful yeah I think so too so Michael's our pastor if you haven't noticed <laughs> but yeah thanks, thanks for that I, I can open it up to other questions as well uh, before we close Of, like people who you know are not financially 
countries or missions or maybe? I'm not sure actually. So like if you know like I quit my job like very abruptly over a year ago and some people said like, Oh you're so courageous. You're so courageous, you don't know what you're gonna do now. I was like, Yeah, that's true, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but the thing is like that's interesting too because if I got a job like right away after that, that they would have been like, Oh, you're so courageous and it worked out for you good. But for me, it didn't work out for me, and I was unemployed for, like, over a year after that. So, like, people wouldn't say, like, oh, that's a good decision. They wouldn't say, like, oh, that's courageous, right? <laughs> so, so I guess that's kind of, like, a long way of saying that. I don't really know. Um, but I don't know. Maybe also don't listen to people because they're kind of bad. Like, you <laughs> like yeah. You can, I think you can have courage in both instances. But I also think, in your point, we like to wait till we see the outcome to decide if we think something was a good decision or not. Yeah. So like in your situation, if you would have got the job you liked right away, we would have right. said, oh, that was so courageous. And right. Then, but like you said, like you still made that decision and the only person right. that really knows is like you and the circumstances and stuff. And I think right. it's sort of a cop-out, I think, sometimes to wait and see yeah. or how we define success in that way. So I don't know if that right. answers. I don't really have an answer because I think it's sort of a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Is that, is that responsive to your question? I mean, I guess the answer is we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a qualified we don't know, though. Yeah. But I also think, like, in your situation, you're talking, like, if someone's going to do something that's financially beyond their means or kind of reckless, that's something else. But yeah. I mean, because you hear stories of, like, people that, you know, whatever, you know, like an orphanage director has no money and they pray and, like, the next day formula shows up. Yeah. You know, and, like, that wouldn't happen if they had money. Right? Yeah. But at the same time, like, as Westerners, I look at that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, like the issue of love come back into it, right? Like, is it being driven and motivated by love? Uh, yeah, maybe. I think so. Because um, I think what what God tells us, which is ultimately the most powerful thing for me, for me, especially this past year, wasn't that He promises us good things. Good things sometimes happen, right? Like, it works out in the nick of time. But what he tells us is, like, okay, they might not happen, but I'll be with you. I'll stand with you through it. Um, and I think that's also kind of beautiful and inspiring in its own way. Uh, at least it has been experienced for me, right? So I think we're running out of time. Uh, if you have any questions, you can ask me, and I'll just tell you I don't know. But, um, yeah, maybe I can pray for us, and then we can go listen to, like, real preachers. Um Lord, we thank you for giving us good things. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for being with us, and we thank you for being with us. Um, yeah, we thank you for being in love with us. Help us to love you um, with a sincere love. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place, and we're very excited for um, you know what lies ahead. Um, we pray these things in thanks, and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Ezra. Yeah.